Amen. Thank you, Dan. Young professionals. I was able to spend some time with them last year and partner with them in, a, in an event. And one thing that was evident just spending a little bit of time with them is uh, they are a group of young people who pursue truth, who love the gospel, and who value biblical fellowship with one another. And that is not a common thing that generation in today's world. So that's something that we can celebrate, we can be joyful and thankful about, and we can partner with them in ministry. Well, real quickly, before we get into uh, today's word, uh, just a little personal note about myself. And for those of you who are first time here, my name is George Romanacci. I'm the worship pastor here. Uh, I, so Trent, as you know, is on sabbatical. And this is my seventh year here at West Shore. It has flown by. And so last year I applied for sabbatical and I was approved. And so I will be going on sabbatical tomorrow. And uh, yeah, very sudden. Uh, So I'll be gone for 13 weeks and uh, just know that you're gonna be led very well in my absence by Mark, uh, Chris, who's our tech director, who also uh, leads worship. And then Jeff, Judy, who's been in our team for years, he'll be leading as well. And then one week we'll have Nick Trout come back, who's been with us for years before. Um, And I'm excited for you to uh, be able to be led and shepherded in song uh, by them. But I also just wanna say thank you to you because if it wasn't for you, it would not be possible that any of us pastors could go on something like a sabbatical. And so thank you very much for allowing this to happen. And uh, you know, our prayer is that we're able to get rest. We're able to be reconnected with the Lord and together as a family and come back refreshed. But know that I will miss you. I will miss leading uh, during this time. I love to lead. It is not work for me. It is joy. And uh, so I will miss it, definitely. Well, today we're gonna look at Exodus and look at what it means to behold the Lord. And uh, before we read the passage, I remember going to Paris years ago. And there in Paris, if you're familiar with Paris at all, there's this museum there called the Louvre. I think I said it correctly. And the Louvre has many works of art, but it has what is arguably, many say, the most famous work of art ever created. It's a work of art that people go just to the Louvre just to see this one painting. This painting is the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa was painted by the famous artist Leonardo da Vinci back in the early 16th century. And it's a a work of art that is so loved that it actually has its own mailbox for love letters. If you've written one to the Mona Lisa, don't admit that to anyone else in here. And so I remember going to the Louvre and I remember thinking, okay, I need to go see the Mona Lisa. I'm here. I mean, it's the Mona Lisa, right? So I remember being shuttled into this area where they have this this special exhibit to see it. And it was just like we were on a line at Disney World, just hours long line, just tons of people mobbing to go see this painting. And so as we made our way through the line, we made our way through the front People kind of parted and it was our turn to go and and put our eyes on it, behold this painting. And I saw it and I was very underwhelmed, to be honest. And I don't mean to trash the Mona Lisa, but it's just kind of a drab painting. It's, It's just a lot of brown and black and green and I'm sorry. And also it was super small like super small. It's like as big as a regular piece of like printer paper. And I'm, I'm, we wait in this line for this? I could be eating baguettes and croissants and we're looking at this thing. And so I just left just real dissatisfied and not impressed at all. But I remember around me, 
the, pe- the difference, the contrast with so many people, there are these people that, that of all different nations and, and cultures coming to see this painting and they're ooing and eyeing and taking pictures and taking selfies with it and just with their mouth wide open, that's the Mona Lisa, oh my gosh. And I think it's not even the real one that they hang. Anyway, that's another conspiracy theory. <laughs> But here's the thing. In life, we have things that are temporal, that we think we need to behold. We need to put our eyes on. We need to to fix our vision on. We need to have, give our undivided attention to. And when I say the word behold, and for, uh, in the context of the entire sermon today, behold is not simply the action of just looking at something the way that you would watch a movie or look at even at a painting. But what beholding is, is to lean in. It's to give of your attention, to give of your focus, to give of your understanding, to give of your energy. And usually when you behold something, that's where your affections lie. And so if there's something in your life that is temporal that you have as your priority of what you need to behold, what you're gonna end up being is dissatisfied, wanting, and just, not really happy in the end. You need more. But as we're the people of God, we know the one who is majestic, who is beautiful, who is perfect, who is flawless. When we behold him, behold our God, behold the Lord high and lifted up, that is where we find true satisfaction. And what we're gonna see today is we will see that when we behold the Lord, we also find transformation that when we look at God and see who he is, who he's revealed himself to be, we change. We're not the same as we once were. And we're gonna look at this in the life of Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. And just a word about Moses before we get into this passage is, you know, Moses is so much more than just the cool guy that you remember from Sunday school who got the 10 commandments and part of the Red Sea. Moses during this time was God's chosen prophet, vessel, priest. The Lord loved Moses. It says in Exodus 33, 11, that God would speak to Moses face to face a way a man would speak to his friend. There was a special relationship. Not only that, but Moses was the mediator between God and the people. And so God would call Moses just by himself, no one else, and he would speak to Moses face to face and he would give Moses the law and the covenant and all the message that he would have to then go relay to the Israelites. Many times also, Moses would be the one to intercede for the people of Israel to God on the people's behalf, asking for forgiveness or petitioning for help. The Lord listened to Moses. He loved Moses and he communed with Moses. He was unique in this. And theologians say that Moses was a type of Christ in this, as he was a priest and a mediator, an imperfect one, but he was a type of Christ during this time. And so with that in mind, today's big idea is this. Beholding God is an active action of longing and revelation that results in worship and transformation. 
Beholding God is an active action of longing and revelation that results in worship and transformation. And what we'll see from Exodus 33 and 34 are these stages of beholding God modeled by Moses, that we start with a longing to behold him. And then as we long to behold him, the Lord is gracious to reveal himself to us and we see who he is. And then the only response to that revelation is worship. And then as we worship and we behold our God, we're transformed into his image. And then when we're transformed, we're called to be witnesses to others that are blinded by sin. And so the first thing we see in Exodus 33 and 34 about what Moses teaches us about beholding God is to behold God with deep longing and desperation. And so this is where we are in the story of the Israelites and Moses here in Exodus 33. We have the background of Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery from the Egyptians, crossing the Red Sea, going into the wilderness, the Lord giving them victory after victory in the wilderness, and a covenant is ratified between God and the people as Moses mediates. The Ten Commandments are handed over. The Ark of the Covenant is constructed. The priesthood of Israel is instituted. And then Israel messes everything up. They mess it all up when they're waiting for, the, waiting for Moses to come down from speaking with the Lord because they're impatient. And what do they do? They make an idol out of gold, a golden calf, and they worship it. And when Moses comes down and God sees them in their idol worship, his wrath and his anger burns hot against them. And there's thousands of people that are actually wiped out as a consequence of this. Not only this, but now the covenant is broken because the people have disobeyed the Lord. And so the Lord calls the people a stiff-necked people. And he says, I want you to leave this area and continue on to the promised land. But the difference is, I will not go up among you. I will not be with you. My presence will not follow you as it did before. The people are distraught. The situation is in shambles. They're tearing off their jewels. And Moses is beside himself. I mean, can you imagine Moses after all this, after all he's been through, the people do this and the covenant is broken. He's tired, he's frustrated, he's weary, but he's mostly frustrated because God will not be with him. They will be utterly alone on the journey. And so Moses has a choice here how to react. He could just have a pity party for himself. He could just complain to the Lord. He could just say, you know what, I'm done. I quit, I'm out. But no, what he does is he goes to God and he petitions. He petitions to the Lord. And his ask, among many asks, is to see him clearly, to see and know his glory, to behold his God, so that the favor of God and the presence of God would rest on him and rest on Israel. And this is where we pick up in Exodus 33, verse 12. We'll have the passages on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible with you. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, the Lord's so gracious, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. 
And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then here's Moses' desperate cry and plea. Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. So Moses is desperate and longs to behold the Lord, to reside in his presence. And where this longing and desperation comes from is from his understanding that without seeing the Lord, he's got nothing that there is a desperate need that he has for him and his people to behold God in his glory and receive his guidance. Part of our, our history here in America is that in the 19th century, up past the Civil War, as the South had slavery, slaves were not free in the South, and there were many free states in the North, people who saw that slavery was wrong wanted a way for slaves to escape their slavery. And so what was created, it was this underground railroad is what it was called. And basically it was a network of people who helped slaves traverse from the south up to north. There were safe houses installed that were somewhere schoolhouses or churches that they could travel to. And here's the thing, the journey was extremely treacherous for a slave. Many times they did it by themselves. Many times it had to be at night. And also slaves during that time, most of them, the overall majority of them could not read could not write, could not read a map, could not even read a compass. But there was one way that they were taught in order to find where they were supposed to be going, and that was to locate the North Star. Now, do you think it's unique about the North Star is that as the Earth rotates, the North Star stays in place. And so if you find a North Star, you always find where true North is. And so the slaves in their journey would look at this bright star and keep following it and following it. That star became a symbol of freedom. Not only a symbol of freedom, but it was their freedom if they followed it up to the free states in the north. In the same way, Moses knows that the Lord is his north star. The north star, the one that never changes, that's consistent in every way. That if he can see the Lord, he has direction. He has guidance. He knows where he's going and there is favor on his life because to see God is to live. And for us, it's the same thing. Are we looking to false stars? Are we looking to false things for guidance and direction? Do we behold things that are just kind of passing? Things that will end up leaving you wandering in the darkness. But the perfect star the perfect guiding light is our God. And so we need to see him with longing and desperation, understanding our abject need to see him. Because without him, without an image and a view of him, we are nothing and we are completely lost. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, here's the promise, and he will make your paths straight. Moses knows this. So we do, do we have a longing and desperation to see God for who he is like Moses did? 
And the Lord being gracious and kind to those who seek him as he was to Moses, he agrees that Moses can see him, can meet him face to face. Except there's something that can't be done. Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, this is the physical side, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. He cannot see the Lord with his physical eyes. The Lord saying you would die immediately. And so the Lord sets the terms for how he can be approached and Moses gladly obliges. And even Moses, and we think about it, right? God's chosen vessel, chosen priest and prophet still could not see the Lord at that time face to face. He was part of an old and lesser covenant that was failing. And so the Lord told him to come on the mountain, Mount Sinai in the morning, and he put his hand over Moses and hit him on the cleft of the rock, and the Lord's back just passed by. That's all Moses could see. But here's the thing. When this happens, and when he beholds the Lord in this way, it's not just seeing a spectacle, but what happens is the Lord actually declares who he is in his character. And that's why when we behold God, we know God. He's gracious to reveal himself, his inner workings to us. And this is what we see here, Exodus 34, verse eight. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God speaking about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so as the Lord invites Moses to behold him, and he does this, and he sees this crazy view of the most insane cloud. I mean, it seems like something that should be in a movie with like special effects, like just a large in life. Just imagine being Moses for a second and just seeing all this, this cloud and just glory. And all he can see is God's back. But it's so much more than that because then the Lord shouts and declares who he is for his people his attributes, his character. And every single attribute that he's mentioned here, we know that it is true, that our God is merciful. We think about the mercy that he's shown us in Jesus, that our God is gracious, that he's gracious to every single one of us as his children, that he provides for every single one of our needs in every season, that our God is slow to anger, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but rather lavishes on us perfect grace, that our God is loving, that he's a perfect Father who loves his children, that he is faithful. Every promise he makes has come or will come to fruition, that he is forgiving, that by the blood of Christ, our sins are washed away, that he looks on Jesus and his work and pardons us for what we did. And our God is just, that he does not let wickedness go unpunished, 
that one day he will make everything right and evil will be judged and he will deal with the wicked. You see, to behold God is to go so much deeper than just simply seeing a view from a mountain. But it's more to understand what the view contains, what the view means for your life, the inner, view, the inner workings of the view. And so we are invited then to be like Moses, to behold the Lord and to understand who he is towards us and towards his people and towards his creation. And so then the response to this, as we see with Moses, is I really think the only response that we can have to beholding the Lord, and that is to worship. In Exodus 34, verse eight, it says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I love how it says quickly. He didn't waste any time doing anything else. There was nothing better than he could be doing than just adoring God for seeing him in his glory and realizing and understanding who he is in his character. And so the revelation of God on his terms, in his words, moves Moses to overwhelmed worship. And for us, I wanna make a couple of observations here in this place, Sunday mornings, you know, one of the reasons, the main reasons that we start most services and our services are, are and our whole church, everything we do here is founded and girded upon the word of God is because God reveals himself who he is in his character through his word. He reveals himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his son Jesus, but through his inerrant and perfect and authoritative word. And so we must start with it. It must be the firm foundation for everything that we know and believe about God because if we don't have his word as our foundation, we will just make up our own God. We'll be influenced by culture. We'll be influenced by what the world says and who the world says God is. They can't even make up their mind. Every day it changes. But our God's word, his word never changes. Our God is not a liar. And anyone who says different is the liar. And so we stand on his word for everything we do. It informs everything, every part of our life, every part of our being, every part of this church, and it always will be so. God help us in that. Second, it's, second is this, is that as you know, beholding the Lord is a, is a response, the response is worship. Yes, it's for our entire lives every single day that we understand that worship is not just the 20 minutes of singing, that we have here on Sunday mornings. It's not just a service, but worship is your entire life. It never stops. It's a, it's a continuous outpouring of ourselves with our, with our words and our deeds and our motives and our thoughts. Everything is worship. And so yes, when we behold the Lord in his glory throughout the week, we wanna worship him. But I wanna say a moment specifically about congregational worship here in this place when it comes to beholding the Lord that when we gather here on Sunday mornings, that you're understanding really what's, what's taking place. There's a lot taking place. But one of the things that's taking place is that there is a unique and corporate and united expression and togetherness in beholding God together. I mean, think about this for a second. I'm sure many of you don't know each other in this room. You don't know what each other have, have been through, where you come from. But when we step into this place, and we come together united under one savior, one blood, one truth, one word. All of, all of that other stuff doesn't really matter. It just kind of fades in the background. 
and we're corporately beholding God together. We behold God together when we sing together, that you understand that what we're doing when we're singing, when Mark was up here leading us this morning, we're not just doing karaoke up here. We're not just here to entertain you. We're not here to appease you or make you happy or make you just feel good about yourself. No, what we are doing is helping shepherd you to behold the Lord in his glory and see who he is and allow the truth that you're declaring to dwell in your minds and your hearts richly. That's our purpose. And it's really awesome and amazing because when it comes down to it, we know that God is here in this place. He's present. He's moving. He's bringing dead things to life. And we get to behold him because he delights to reveal himself to us every single time we gather. And so the response to that is really Understand, this is a grand matter. This is serious. Like, you know, Sunday mornings are not just a box that we check or it's because we're evangelical American Christians and that's what we do. We go to church on Sunday morning. But rather, there's something real taking place, powerful taking place in here. And so how should we approach it? Well, I hope that we approach it the way Moses approached beholding God, with anticipation with longing, with desperation, with expectation of what God's gonna do in here. And my challenge to you this, my question to you is this, is that we need to all evaluate how do we view Sunday mornings? How do we get ourselves ready on Saturday nights to come on Sunday morning? Are we just kind of forgetting about it? Like it's just kind of a flippant thing, another thing that we do. Are we looking more forward to the new episode of our favorite show? than it is to gather with the people of God on Sunday and sing praises and hear the word of God preached. I mean, this is not something that I've figured out. None of us have figured out. We're imperfect, all of us. But it's something that we must pursue to have expectation and awe that God is here and that this is a unique expression of beholding the Lord together and that should excite us to come. Because how we approach Sundays can say a lot about how much we value and treasure the corporate gathering. Again, is it with reverence or malaise and flippancy? My prayer is that we would be like David prays in Psalm 17, 15. He says, as for me. Say, as for me, as for my family, as for my household, as for my church, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. From the moment that we awake, that we find satisfaction in beholding the face of God and who he is. So we've seen in beholding the Lord and what Moses shows us is there's longing we should have longing to behold the Lord. There's obedience and following what the Lord has set for us to come behold him, how we come to him. And then as we see him, as he reveals himself to us, we respond in worship. And then what is the result of all this? The result is change. The result is, is transformation. The result is that you don't leave the same as you were. And this is what happened for Moses. After he went up on that mountain, a new covenant was ratified between God and the people. The relationship had been restored. And Moses receives a word to go share with the people. And as he comes around from the mountain, this is what happens. In verse 34, or chapter 34, verse 29. 
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And skipping down to verse 33. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses was changed because just being around the presence of God and beholding him, God's glory, his glory is uncontainable. Not only that, but God's glory. He loves to share of himself to his children just pouring out and pouring out of himself over us. You know, I, I talked about this before, but I love to smoke meat. I love eating smoked meats and I love to smoke meat. But one of the things I love the most about smoking meat, which obviously is eating it, right? That's the best part about it. But it's the process, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours. I just made a pork shoulder. It took me like 16 hours to do. But one of the things I love is that as, you know, you open the vent on the smoker and you have the cherry wood or the pecan wood or the apple wood and the smoke is just billowing out of this thing, I love just to take in that smell. It, it, it's just a glorious, glorious aroma. It really is. Some of you are giving me faces. You'll learn one day, maybe. And my wife's caught me. I just like lean over the smoker and just, it's good. It's glorious. But one thing about, smoke from a smoker when you're smoking meat is that it sticks to you. It sticks to your skin. It sticks to your clothes. You smell like a walking smoker. And so I think it's kind of cool. But when you go in, so when I go in the house, I think it's great. But Noelle, my wife is like, hey, could you change your clothes? Because it's really strong. I'm like, really? But here's the thing. It's a silly metaphor. But when it comes to the glory of God, it, it, it's even more than the smoke from a, from a smoker, how it sticks to you. It's like, you can't avoid, you can't avoid getting it all over you. It's the same thing with the glory of God and that when he pours out his glory and we behold him and we're in his presence, it, it, there's nothing we can do to really help being covered by his presence and being changed and being different and being transformed. Then our hearts, our innermost being is being molded into his very image that our, our joy comes from somewhere deeper, that peace resides no matter the season, that satisfaction wells up from a firmer foundation than anything else, that faith rises and doubts fade when we're in his presence and see him. Because here's the thing, the Bible tells us very clearly, and we know this in our lives, that when we, when we behold God, that we are transformed into his image, but also there's the negative in the sense that whatever we behold, if we behold idols, if that's what our vision is on, that's what our, the affections of our heart is on, the eyes of our heart are, is on, we're gonna be like whatever that idol is. Psalm 115 talks about this warning. It says that idols are inanimate objects. They're made of silver or gold. They can't touch because they don't have hands. They can't see because they don't have eyes. They can't walk because they don't have feet. They're just fake things. But here is the warning in verse eight. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
So if what you're mainly beholding in your life, what you give your attention to, what you give your affections and your love is not of the Lord, if it's money, you're gonna be materialistic. You're gonna be like that. If there's some sort of addiction in your life that you've given yourself to, your life is gonna take on the markers of whatever that, that thing is. And that road always leads to death and destruction and wandering and darkness and lostness. But when the eyes of our heart are on the Lord, we are transformed. But are we transformed and changed like Moses was? Do we walk out of here with physical shining faces that we have to wear veils? As weird as that sounds. No, it's so much better. Because here's the most exciting part of this morning. Moses beheld in part, but we, because of Jesus, we behold to a greater degree than even he did. Even he did on that mountain, seeing such an insane view of the glory of God in his back. We behold the Lord to a greater degree and clear. And I think that the wrong, the wrong way of thinking, I think, is that when we hear a story like this, something as crazy as, as Moses on the mountain and the glory and the shining face and, and seeing with his physical eyes this cloud, the Lord speaks to him, he audibly hearing his voice. We may think, if I was like Moses, if I was in that place, if I could be there, you know what? I would really believe that God is real. My faith would be stronger. I wouldn't have as many doubts as I have now. I would understand more about who God is. But that's actually a fallacy. Because of Jesus, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, speaking about Exodus 33 and 34, is that because of the perfect Son of God, we get to see who our God is completely and clearly. We no longer need a human prophet or a priest like Israel needed Moses to have any interaction with our God. We don't need a veil, we don't need a mountain, but instead we get to see him. And this is where we pick up in 2 Corinthians 3, verse four. This is game-changing stuff right here. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. And just very quick, I wanna get some context to what he's talking about with the letter and the Spirit. When he's talking about the letter kills, the letter is referring to the old covenant law that Moses received in the Old Testament before Christ, whereas the Spirit is referring to the Holy Spirit that we've received in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. The letter then references Mosaic law and then the 10 commandments. And that ministry kills because it declares what God demands you do, except there's no sufficient power or righteousness to actually fulfill those commands. And so the minute that they were broken by the people, there was a death sentence on them because no one can keep the law Perfectly. All it takes for God's judgment is to break it just one time. Okay, so continuing in verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit, that's where we are today, have even more glory? 
For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, meaning the law brought condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came in glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. We have the permanent glory because of Jesus. More access, more clarity, more freedom, more grace, more everything from our God in order to behold him. Because Jesus, the one who showed selfless love on the cross, perfect power in the grave, and full authority in his reign, who has ratified a new covenant between God and man where we no longer need a tent or a meeting place or a mountain or a temple or a Moses, but instead, because of Jesus, God meets us right where we are. Does it matter the season of our life? He meets us in our homes, in our work, in this assembly. He meets us in our very hearts at our lowest and our highest moments in life. He's here and we can talk to him even more than Moses did, face to face as a friend, but now even further than a friend, as a father. It's incredible, as a father, Lesser glories, temporary covenants, and relying on the impossible mission of keeping a law that we could not keep has passed. But what is now lasting and eternal is grace-filled because of Christ's work on the cross and in the gospel. And because of all this, what are we called to do? Who are we called to be? Paul says that we are called to be bold courageous in the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. And then verse 16 but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. This is good news. This should get us excited. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what church? Freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit, amen. The one who was unapproachable in glory is now inviting us to see his face. What was once unfathomable to approach a holy God, now we come before him in his throne room, accepted, redeemed, loved, a co-heir with Christ, a child, a son and daughter of the most high God. The glory of his shining face that was once violent before an unholy people is now a comforting light to us, our guide. And so we have freedom in his presence. We have freedom to be unveiled and have unfettered access before him. And now that we've been transformed and we behold him and become more like him in, in love and mercy and kindness and gentleness and grace and holiness and so on and all the fruits of the, the spirit, 
we take the veil off as, as Paul talked about to be bold, but also to be a witness. That we want our lives to shine. We want others, we want those that are actually, the ones who are wearing the veil are the ones who are the unbelievers. They're blinded in their sin. They cannot see. And so we want the shining face that the gospel causes to take place, that they would see that and they would want that and they would desire that and they see that you are different, that we are different, that we shine because of the glory of God because he has purchased us and made us new and that we are a witness to them and the nations would come and be saved. And so in conclusion, church, we must behold the Lord every day of our lives, beholding him with longing and desperation, obeying him with the terms that he set in the way that we come before him, looking to his word by the power of his spirit in the face of Jesus as he reveals to us his character. That's how we know who our God is. And then we respond in sweet worship, that our lives are a living sacrifice, every part of it, holy and acceptable to God every day. And transformation takes place. We're different than we were before. And then we're a witness to those that are blind. So as we sing our last song and we respond in worship, we're beholding God together. We're beholding God in his glory. We're declaring truth and we're seeing again who he is. That our savior is the perfect meteor that has made us possible to see our God. Every day, every moment, until that day that we join all the saints and the angels in heaven and we see him with our physical eyes as well. Let's pray. Lord, we're humbled before you. We're humbled that you would reveal yourself to us, that you sent your son as the perfect mediator so that we could commune with you. We could commune with you as you are our father, our perfect father. And I pray that, that, that you would forgive us for the times that we look to other, other idols, that we look to, to, to false stars and other things to behold that we put above you that we try to receive satisfaction and delight from those things. I pray that you would just gently turn us back to you, turn our eyes back to you to see you high and lifted up for who you are. And that our response would be worship and that we invite transformation in our life. Transformation to make us into your image, to be more like you. That's what we desire, oh God. Help us to have a fervor and a desperation to behold you. We love you, O oh God. We praise you, the one who is high and lifted up. Now receive our praise as we look to your truth and we declare it. In your holy name we pray, amen. Amen, let's stand and sing.